0: Welcome to Songcraft, conversations with great songwriters. I'm Paul Duncan. And I'm Scott B. Bomar. Songcraft
1: brings you in-depth interviews with the men and women who've put pen to paper, hands to keyboards, and fingers to strings to create lyrics and music that stand the test of time. You probably know their
0: names, and you definitely know their songs. We bring you their stories. You can hear all our episodes, check out our bonus content, sign up for our email list, and contact us directly at songcraftshow.com. Also, please take a moment to like us at facebook.com songcraftshow and follow us on Twitter at songcraftshow. You're
1: listening to Long Cool Woman in a Black Dress, as recorded by the Hollies and co-written by our guest on this episode of Songcraft, Roger Cook. Though he is now a Nashville Songwriters Hall of Famer, the British-born cook began his career in the UK, first making a splash on the US charts with The Fortune's top 10 hit recording of You've Got Your Troubles." Additional U.S. singles in that era included the top ten hits Green Grass by Gary Lewis and the Playboys, I Was Kaiser Bill's Batman by Whistling Jack Smith, and Here Comes That Rainy Day Feeling Again by The Fortunes. In 1972, Cook scored with two different versions of I'd Like to Teach the World to Sing, an international hit that began as a groundbreaking commercial jingle for Coca-Cola before becoming a successful single for the Hillside Singers and then the New Seekers. Later that year, he topped the charts with the Hollies' Long Cool Woman in a Black Dress. He and longtime songwriting partner Roger Greenaway were named Songwriters of the Year two years in a row for 1971 and 1972 at the Ivor Novello Awards in the U.K. In the mid-1970s, Cook moved to Nashville, where he found success with a string of number one hits, including BMI Country Song of the Year, Talking in Your Sleep for Crystal Gale, I Believe in You for Don Williams, and Love Is on a Roll, a song co-written with John Prine that became another number one for Williams. Additional chart-topping hits include ASCAP Country Song of the Year, One Night at a Time, and I Just Want to Dance With You, both number one singles for George Strait. Roger's songs have been recorded by The Drifters, Frankie Valley, Neil Diamond, Johnny Cash, John Prine, Sonny and Cher, Chet Atkins, Nancy Wilson, Bette Midler, Petula Clark, Brenda Lee, Clint Black, Amy Grant, Reba McIntyre, and others. He is a Grammy nominee, ACM nominee, three-time CMA Song of the Year nominee, and the only British inductee into the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame. Additionally, he and Roger Greenaway were inducted into the National Songwriters Hall of Fame in 2009.
0: Well, before we get into our conversation, or uh, rather, I should say, your conversation with Roger Cook, I was not uh, wasn't present for this one. Yeah, um, yeah. But it's, it's still worth listening, anyway. Everyone, just want to <laughs> let you know, it's still still worth listening. Um, but with New Year's, uh, generally it tends to come changes in people's lives, and we have a couple of cool changes here at Songcraft. Yeah, I'm afraid of change, <laughs> which is why I had to spend about an hour kind of cajoling you this morning into into an idea of some some changes. But uh, we're gonna kind of just like switch a couple format things up with the way we do Songcraft and, and have a little fun. And one of the things that we wanted to do is sort of bring some of Scott's and my uh, barstool conversations, if you will, into. The format of what we're doing here at Songcraft.
1: And also broaden the conversation to you guys. We'd like to interact with our listeners a little bit more, and so we're going to start introducing some new segments into the show. We're still going to have our conversations with songwriters from all genres and eras, but we're also going to start introducing some different segments, some of which we don't want to give away just yet. They're (laughs) going to be a a cool surprise. Um, But one of the things we want to do is start having some conversations just about the sort of stuff that you talk about with your buddies. You know, like, hey, what are the the five greatest songwriters of all time. Right. Um, you know, that sort of stuff. But we want to get you guys in on the conversation. And we actually, starting with next episode, are going to have a conversation uh, about something that uh, I think is kind of an interesting phenomenon. Paul, I'll let you kind of explain what the what the concept is. Yeah,
0: we, we Scott and I are going to share each of our three favorite songs uh, by artists that we otherwise normally wouldn't be a fan of.
1: Yeah. And so, we want to hear what you guys think about yeah. that, too. Now... Basically, that just means exactly what it sounds like. And, and I'm going to go ahead and, and give an example of of the type of thing that, that we're talking about. There's a song called I Never Cry by Alice Cooper. And it's a beautiful ballad, beautiful melody. Now, I got nothing against Alice Cooper, but frankly, I don't actually know that much about Alice Cooper. Right. I'm not like a shock rock guy. I'm not like, you know, a, a, a big Alice Cooper fan. Maybe if there was some other stuff that I heard that I might be really into it. But in general... I'm a huge fan of this song, but I'm kind of like Alice Cooper is a bit of a question mark to right. me. So who are, the, who are the artists that there's a song that you just love? It's one that, that you know maybe just doesn't necessarily fit in with what is normally your cup of tea as a fan.
0: Right. And this is different from guilty pleasures. Indeed. Right, that, That's a Indeed. whole different thing altogether. That's a different
1: category. That'll yeah. be another day.
0: Yeah. But so we're each going to come up with three of them for next, uh, next episode. And we're not going to let each other know ahead of time. So the, uh, the aghast reactions that you hear from each one of us will be, uh, absolutely genuine unrehearsed <laughs> unrehearsed um. so
1: you guys can send us uh some of the 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 things that uh that you have on your mind in terms of that category you can reach us at songcraft at songcraftshow.com so email us like what are one or two of of your favorite songs that kind of fit into that category you can also find us on uh, facebook and we'll be tweeting about this uh this week as well and please respond we want to hear what you guys have to say because this is actually a great way to start uh, yep. debates yep. Uh, to discover music And it's a a fun and
0: interactive way that we can all kind of be part of this conversation. You know, if we had a category for songwriter whose songs cross genres in crazy ways that you wouldn't expect them to both exist in the same catalog, Roger Cook might fit into that category. He might be the king of that
1: category. Talk about a guy that's like dominated every aspect of popular music.
0: Absolutely. I mean, on one hand, you've got, I'd like to teach the world to sing from the Coke commercial and then long cool woman in a black dress on the other <laughs> right, side right right coming from the same writer yeah yeah so uh,
1: Paul mentioned he was not around for this particular interview it's not because he uh, overslept or uh, or <laughs> skipped out that day I was uh, in Nashville recently and had the opportunity to sit down with uh, a handful of writers actually I, I, I spent some time with Roger Cook um, also spent some time with Bob Depiro and Mark D Sanders so those are episodes that you'll be hearing in the future mm-hmm. gonna tease those a little bit there um, but anyway Anyway, didn't have my uh, my compadre, my uh, my partner in crime there with me, but I managed to uh, to soldier on and and yeah, do it alone. Right. And I did all right. Yeah. I asked some great questions. Uh, yeah. I'll admit it. The mic blows up a little. It's a, a little bit. a little hot. I'm not an engineer. I'm not good with uh hot, hot with the Pro Tools. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but uh, anyway, hopefully you can ignore that and enjoy uh, this fantastic conversation with Roger Cook. And you know, we always say on here. You probably know their names, and you definitely know their songs. You can bold, underline, and giant font. You definitely know their songs when it comes to Roger Cut.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, It is a good interview. I know. I just listened to the whole thing myself, and I'm ready to hear it
2: again.
1: Nice. Well, then let's hear it. Roger, welcome to Songcraft.
2: Thank you, Scott. It's good to be
0: here.
1: Yeah. Well, you were, of course, raised in England, and... Um, remained there until you were in your mid-30s when you moved to the U.S., Nashville specifically. Um, what kind of music were you exposed to as a child growing up in the U.K.?
2: Well, there was uh, the very bland 50s stuff, you know, late 40s, early 50s stuff. A lot of the pericoma stuff and that. was pretty bland. Hmm. Even Frank Sinatra got bland back then. <laughs> it wasn't until about the mid-50s when... Uh, I have to say, it was Bill Haley first that huh. turned us all on to rock and roll. And I heard uh, Rock Around the Clock, and I thought, wow, wait a minute. That sounds like it's aimed at me, you know? And, uh, <laughs> right. And then along comes Little Richard and Fats Domino and Chuck Berry, and, well, the whole thing changed.
3: Yeah, yeah.
2: But I have to say, it was probably, it was the early black artists that really turned me on. Little Richard especially, I thought he was up. Uh, who could ever beat him? I don't think anybody has topped him yeah. yet. Yeah,
1: uh, yeah. So then you you ask your parents if you could get an instrument, or how did you start, start getting into it for yourself?
2: Well, I remember the first time my father heard Little Richard, he said, that's not music, son. <laughs> you know, he was into Bing Crosby. Sure. Of course, many years later, I had a couple of Bing Crosby records, and he said, well, you can't get any bigger than that, son. All <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> I, um, I was a boy soprano. And I I sang in church choirs. Right. And uh, even earned money in church choirs because they paid you then for weddings and funerals, you know. Right, right. And I, so I got into getting into harmonies. Yeah. Group choirs, you know, choristers. Sure. And uh, my mother would en- ent- enter me now in a game for um talent contest, you know. Right. As a boy soprano. Sure. And I, I think I only ever won one. <laughs> There was a big fat kid at school who kept winning all of them (laughs) because he sang Jerusalem like nobody else did. Right, (laughs) and he won most of them. But I won this one anyway, and um, it kind of that spurred me on to thinking, hey, I can sing. Yeah, you know, and so I sang from then on through my early teens. Uh, and always wanted to be in some kind of group doing something. My brother told me I could join his um harmonica group if i learned to play a harmonica which i did right and so my first appearance on stage really with a group was with a harmonica band huh. just about 1954 55 and then uh i got invited one day to go and audition for a young group of guys i knew one of them who were forming a harmony group and his friend of mine knew that I sang. He said, "Why don't you come up and just uh, sing a bit? And if they like you, you can join us." Right. And so I did. And that was 1957. Hmm. And the group we called ourselves the Harmonettes. <laughs> I mean, this is 1957. <laughs>
3: right. Right.
2: And uh, we eventually ended up calling ourselves the Sapphires. Huh. And we did. We got pretty damn good. So this was kind of like doo-wop type stuff? Yeah, or? absolutely okay, yeah. doo-wop. Yeah, yeah. This is one guitarist, five singers. Okay, okay. With a girl in the middle. Right. <laughs> and... Uh, so
1: was that by this point, had you gotten into writing any material
2: of your own or... Well, with this group, the Sapphires, the guitarist singer, his name was B. Brian Holly. Right. He wrote a song for the... For the girl singer to sing, I can remember it was called Let the Wind Blow. And we learned to sing it, and we all did it. And I was so jealous. (laughs) I was really jealous of this guy. And I thought, damn, how hard can it be to write a song? Right. So I sat down and wrote a song. And it was really easy. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, then I wrote a few more. Then I wrote one for a girlfriend. And then I got kind of serious about songwriting. And the group performed a couple of them, you know.
1: Well, the earliest recording that I could find of a Roger Cook song is an instrumental from 1961 called Parisian by the Frank Weir Orchestra. That song's really, I mean, it sounds like something from an earlier era. And I'm curious, how did you come up with that and wind up getting it cut?
2: Well, I wrote that tune. And it was about 1960 when I wrote it. I played it to my then manager, who was an orchestral leader in Bristol. His name was Arthur Partman, And he said, I like this tune. He said, I know this guy, Frank Weir. So I'll go up to London and play it to him. He played it to Frank Weir. Right. He came back to me and said, Frank will record it if he can have a third of the song, and I get a third of the song. Right. <laughs> oh, I said, okay. You know, what did I know? I said, yeah, sure, you know. Right, right. I'll settle for a third of my song. <laughs> right. and I gave him, and they recorded it, and it was the first thing I ever have recorded. Uh, funny enough, it became a hit years later. Not a hit, but it became um, the um, theme tune to a French TV series on a kind of detective series. Right. It
3: became very well-known. Right, right, right.
2: And then I put extra words to it and Ben Crosby cut it. Yeah. This was later on right, in the 60s. Right.
1: So that was Where the Rainbow Ends, right? Was that Where true? the
2: Rainbow Ends, yeah, exactly. Yeah.
1: Well, the first time we see your name on the charts, at least in the U.S., uh, was in 1965 when the fortunes hit number seven on the Billboard pop chart with You've Got Your Troubles, a song that went all the way to number two in the U.K. I see that worry love your face, you've got your troubles. I've got my eyes. She's found somebody else to take your place. You've got your troubles. I've got my eyes. And that's a song that you wrote with uh, Roger Greenaway, with whom you would collaborate obviously for many years. How did the two of you first start writing songs together and how did that one in particular come about?
2: Well, he was in a group in Bristol, same 1959, 60, the same as us. They went on they had to go and do their national service. They were all of that age. Right. I was just six months younger and I missed it, thank hmm. God for that. Wow. Anyway, a few years later, around about 1963, he called my my then manager, Arthur Parkman, and said, one of the boys is leaving our group. Yeah. And uh, would Roger like to join us? And I jumped at it. I was in pantomime at the time. I was in theater. And I jumped at it. I said, oh, yes, yeah, I'd love to be with Keskis. They were a great. Another do-what group, you know. Right, right. Four singers and singing harmonies. Yeah. And I joined them. And six months later, the group folded. Hmm. By that time, Roger and I had sat down and written. He knew I wrote songs. Yeah. And uh, I knew he wrote songs. So one day during a break on a Herman's Hermits tour in 65, we sat down and we wrote, um, You Got Shrubs, I Got Mine.
1: Is that the first thing you guys wrote together?
2: Very first song we ever wrote together. Wow. I know, it's amazing. <laughs> and uh, we demoed it, and our publisher played it, George Martin, who called yeah. us into his office and said... Uh, I really like the song. I love the way you sing it. I want to record it with you. This is the Beatles <laughs> producer, you know. Yeah, yeah. Say, yeah, George. Okay, you know. <laughs> right. But, but but then we had to wait three months while he finished the little album called Rubber Soul. And in the meantime, in that time, a group called the Fortunes got a hold of it, and we had the mixed blessing of watching uh, our song go at the charts all around the world when it could have been our record. Oh, uh,
1: so the intention
2: was. You guys
1: were going to cut that song. We were going to cut it and have a hit with it. Yeah. But it got
2: out in the... And I'm glad the fortunes cut it because they made a great record.
1: That arrangement with George Martin, as I understand it, did. You guys were a duo known as David and Jonathan. You scored a a few hits, including a cover of the Beatles' Michelle and an original song uh, called Lovers of the World Unite. Um, So... I'm curious, how did uh, Roger and Roger become uh, David and, and Jonathan? And, and how did that talk, just talk about that whole era and especially having George Martin involved, which is, you know, it's, it's a really
2: cool which thing. Which was huge at the time, yeah. yeah. Well, George really loved us, and uh, he was disappointed about, uh, about You Got Your Troubles. Yeah. So he said, look, he said, um, I've got a song. He said, it's on the boys' album. They're not going to release it as a single. He said... Um, I think it could be a hit. Why don't you see if you can work up a version? Which Roger and I did. Yeah. And, uh, well, we ended up getting the top 20 version here in the States. Yeah. And that's my introduction to the States. Yeah. I'll tell you what, in 1965, if you were English and you had a top 20 hit, <laughs> you, you were, were like God. royalty. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We turned up at radio stations and there'd be like two, 300 kids, you know, wow. waiting on us thinking we were John and Paul incognito. Right. (laughs) And that's the truth. Wow, wow, that's amazing.
1: How'd you guys end up being called David and Jonathan?
2: Well, that was his girlfriend at the time who became his wife, Judy. He decided we couldn't be Roger and Roger. That didn't sound right. And she said, well, David and Jonathan were good friends in the Bible, you know? Right, yeah, yeah. So why not David and Jonathan? we went, well, okay then. I mean, nowadays it sounds like we might as well well, it been called Brian and Cyril, you know. <laughs> right. But anyway, it was. So okay. when you guys
1: would go and like do these radio appearances and stuff, you introduced yourselves as David and Jonathan. David or? and Jonathan. Well, yeah. well. So who who got to be David and who was Jonathan?
2: I had the long name because I was taller. In fact, <laughs> right. to this day, I'm known as Big Rog, and he's known as Little Rog. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what funny. people call us.
1: <laughs> um, Well, in 1967, Gary Lewis and the Playboys had a top ten hit in the U.S. with a a cook and Greenaway composition called Green Grass, but I actually want to ask you about another song that you guys wrote, which came out the following year, by Whistling Jack Smith called I Was Kaiser Bill's Batman.
2: But that was a little tune I came up with him. one day. I, I we, were, we were doing a, a BBC radio show and we were, had time off and we were with our promotion manager from the publishing company, right? Professional manager, I should say. And I, I said, See what you think of this. And I sat at this piano, and I just played, and he said, Oh, that's great. I said, Oh, if you like, I'll write the lyrics out. And he said, No. He said, there hasn't been a whistling hit in years. We'll make a whistling demo. (laughs) It was his idea. And I said, really? A whistling demo? Okay." (laughs) So we made a whistling demo. And the rest is uh, a mystery.
1: (laughs) I mean, that song was a top 20 pop hit in the US. It was top five in the UK, the Netherlands, Germany, Austria, Belgium. I mean, wherever
2: uh, it got released. Yeah. There was no lyric.
1: Yeah. What the where in the heck did that title come from?
2: Now a Batman in English language is not Batman flying through the sky with Robin. <laughs> right. It's um it's like an aide de count to a general or uh, a colonel or something. He's it. the man who goes and fixes the coffee and gets the right. tea and does everything. Right, it. right. So I was um Kaiserville's Batman is yeah, where yeah. that came from. I called it too much birdseed. Oh yeah. Because <laughs> if you whistled a lot in England people say you've had too much birdseed. Right, <laughs> And I got paid for a couple of years. Yeah. Roger and I got paid on the title, Too Much Birdseed. Yeah,
3: yeah,
1: yeah. Interesting. See, I didn't know that's what Batman meant in the UK, so I thought it was just completely bonkers. No, <laughs> no. Yeah,
2: yeah. Do you know, I played golf with somebody yesterday. They mentioned that to me, and they said, why Batman? And I explained it. They said, no, we thought you meant Batman. the right, right. Batman." That's
1: what I thought. I was like, what a weird title. Yeah. <laughs> that's funny. Well, in 1969, your songs were released by artists as diverse as Engelbert Humperdinck, the rock band Deep Purple, Florence Henderson, who would go on to be known as Carol Brady on the Brady Bunch TV show in the U.S. You were obviously writing, I mean, all of these things are, are sort of all over the place, a lot of different styles, a lot of different artists that are cutting them. Would you have described yourself in that era as kind of a, a songwriting jack-of-all-trades, or would you have defined your approach in a particular
2: way. I think we just wanted to write what we wanted to write. Yeah. If I want to write something that was uh, jazz-oriented, I wanted to write that. Yeah, yeah. I didn't want to be contained at all. Sure. The first time we kind of broke out the mold, we had a hit with um, Gene Pitney called Something's Got a Hold On My Heart. But uh, that's the first time we kind of broke out of this poppy kind of happy mold, you know? Yeah, And yeah. got into something else. And uh, now I always wanted to write... Whatever I wanted to write. Didn't want to be placed in a box. No, yeah. I didn't want to be pigeonholed, you know, Right, just...
3: right,
1: right. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, from 1969 through 1974, you were a member of the group Blue Mink, which had four or five top ten singles in the UK, including your debut single, Melting Pot, which was co-written with Greenaway and, and went to number three in the UK.
2: What we need is a great
1: start seeing a, a shift in that era toward kind of more socially conscious songwriting songs with a bit more of a message was that something that was intentional that you guys decided to do or just kind of a reflection of the times
2: just a reflection of times just listen to john lennon bob dylan and paul simon and just thinking why are there something else to be written as well yeah that's all aping our peers you know yeah I'd like to say we were leaders. We weren't. We were great followers.
1: (laughs) Right. (laughs) Um, Well, as we move into the 1970s, you continue to have hits with uh, Roger Greenaway, including My Baby Loves Lovin', a top 10 hit in the UK, and top 15 hit in the US for the group White Plains. But we also start seeing other co-writer names appearing, including Tony McCauley, who joined forces with you and Roger for the hits Home Lovin' Man by Andy Williams, and Here Comes That Rainy Day Feeling Again by The Fortunes. In what ways did bringing in new people into the songwriting partnership kind of influence your creative spark?
2: Well, when you write with someone you haven't written with before, hopefully, and most of the time, they bring something different to the table, you know. Yeah. And it's just a different slant, you know, and uh, somewhere else to go. Yeah. Tony McCauley was a very creative pop writer, you know. He came up with great little pop ideas. And I was sat with him once in the taxi cab going somewhere. He said, I've got an idea for a song. Here comes that rainy day feeling again. I said, that's great. Let me run with that for a while. Yeah. So I came up with the beginning of the song yeah. and eventually got together with uh, Tony and we finished the song. You know? Yeah, yeah. But I jumped on that immediately because I thought that just sounds like a big pop hit. Sure.
1: Yeah, that kind of brings up an interesting question because I'm I'm always curious in terms of of process you know in that instance he had this idea you went away and you worked on it for a while you brought it back was your uh, writing style in those days before you came to Nashville was it typically we'd each kind of go work on our separate parts and then bring them together or would you typically get in a room together and kind of woodshed or
2: we really got in a room together and woodshed yeah yeah. But now and again it didn't work out that way and with that particular song it didn't work out with Tony. Yeah. I went away, I worked on the song for a while, I got this letter, this melody and this idea of going for the lyric. Yeah. And got with Tony and we sat down one day in his apartment and finished the song.
1: No rules for how they all they all work differently, I suppose. Do
2: you know what? There are no rules. Yeah. There really aren't. People always say things like Well, does a melody come first, a lyric. Right. There's no formula. Yeah. Really no formula. Maybe there was back in the 30s and 40s and 50s, but not anymore.
1: Yeah, yeah. After the rock and roll era, it was more wide open. It
2: changed. It was wide open, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, You and, and Roger teamed with Bill Backer and Billy Davis to write a jingle for the Coke commercial that would become perhaps the most iconic ad campaign in human history. Um, talking, of course, about I'd Like to Teach the World to Sing, which became a hit single for both the Hillside Singers and the New Seekers, with the latter version becoming a top ten hit in the U.S., number one in the U.K.
0: I'd like to build the world a home and furnish it with love. Grow apple trees and
3: honeybees and snow white doves I'd
0: like to teach the world to sing, sing In perfect harmony. perfect harmony I'd
2: like to hold it in my heart And keep it company I'd like to see the world
1: for once uh, Tell us how, how that whole thing unfolded.
2: Well, uh, it was Bill that came up with the idea for It's a Real Thing, and he had this idea and he, he, he told Roger and I about it and said, we need a tune to support that, you know. Right. Well, Roger and I had a song out already that was a real dog. The melody was a pretty little melody, but uh, the lyric was pretty useless. Hmm. And it had gone out as a single and flopped, and that was like two years before. And so we resurrected the tune and played it to um, Bill, and Bill said, yeah, that sounds good. yeah. He liked the progression from the one chord to the two chord or from the C chord to the D chord. Right. Which we'd use in You Got Your Troubles and a couple of other songs. So we worked on that. So basically, Roger and I started off, we had the melody. Right. He had the little hooky thing for the commercial. We got together and we sat down that day with Billy Davis and uh, worked on writing some lyrics, you know, and got it done. Yeah. 60-second jingle, that's all. right, right. We got our pay, Roger and I, and that was the end of the gig for us. (laughs) Right, right. We got paid, and that was it. And then the the jingle took off in such a way, the commercial, that uh, people started calling up Coca-Cola and saying, where can we buy the sheet music? Can we get a copy of the song on record? Right. So Billy Davis goes in the studio with the, um, the Hilltop Singers and cuts a version with them, and then cuts another version with the New Seekers. And he and Bill Backer sat down and wrote some extra lyrics to it.
3: Yeah,
2: yeah. And so I can't claim all the lyrics to that song. We right. wrote the jingle lyrics, you know, <laughs> right, right, which are the main lyrics, you know. Sure. So it was a total surprise. It kind of flopped as a radio jingle, huh? But as soon as they put the kids on a hillside holding coat bottles and singing it, you know, yeah, yeah, I like to use the world to sing. Well. I hated the song for the longest time. Oh, yeah? Hated it. I hated being introduced. Here's the man who told the world to sing, Roger Cook. You know, I, God, I hated that. But then I came here, and after a while here, I realized that uh, old people sang it. They even sang it in church here. Really? They sang the words of Amazing Grace to it. Well, With, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound, to say the rest like me. I well, mean, it works perfectly, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, um. Uh, and then kids were learning it in school. My kids would come home, and they'd been singing it in school. And I thought, right. well, the song has transcended its commercial thing. It's right. become something else now. Yeah. So I don't mind it anymore, and I've spent the money anyway. <laughs> right. Now you can
1: embrace your legacy. Yeah, I, I can love it now. <laughs> right, right. So had had you and Roger been, was that something that you guys were were actively doing, was writing commercial jingles? Before that time? Or?
2: Well, we started the jingles in 65 when Bill Backer heard You Got Your Troubles by the Fortunes. Hmm. And he was in the business then of, of recording uh, well-known bands right. singing, the, uh, you know, um, Things Go Better with Coca-Cola right. and putting a little tune to it. Sure. Yeah. So he asked Roger and I to do it, and we went over to New York and we did um, one, and it, it won. The, actually it won uh, one of the awards of the year. Yeah, and from then on we started doing at least two or three a year, and this went on until nineteen seventy one.
1: Till to the big, till the big one.
2: Until and, and a couple more afterwards, yeah, but that was yeah. the big one. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. And and I mean that was pretty prominently used in the final episode of Mad Men. Do you
2: know, I've never seen that. Really, <laughs> but I've heard people who came up to me after and said, "I saw your song. It was the last two minutes of the last show of Mad yeah, Men." I yeah. went, "Well, that was pretty big, right?" The
1: culmination of the whole
2: series. Yeah,
1: <laughs> that's amazing. Um well you know as you mentioned you, you you there were more after that one um Bobby Goldsboro had a hit with Hello Summertime which was another oh, no, jingle you know yeah. kind of turned into a hit and and that one reached the top 10 on the adult contemporary charts here in the US um it it, it had to be an interesting experience to to kind of blur the lines between commercial jingle and and pop record i mean it was that something that was pretty common then or or well did you guys create that mold it was just another uh,
2: for us i never even gave it a thought it was yeah. just um some free money
1: right right right
2: we found it easier to write a 60 second jingle because we were pop writers now. right right and so it wasn't hard um no, I can't say there was any blurring of the lines there. We yeah. just went in, went in on and carried on doing yeah. what we were doing anyway. Yeah, know?
1: just another day of work. Yeah,
3: yeah. Yeah, yeah.
1: Well, in 1972, you and Roger wrote a hit song called Softly Whispering I Love You that was a, a top-five hit in the UK and a top-30 hit in the U.S., for your own group, which was known as the Congregation Overseas and the English Congregation uh, here in the States. And so by that point, you guys are are writing hits for other artists. You're recording hits as artists yourselves. You're writing jingles. You're starting to do your own solo albums. You're singing backup for people like Elton John. You and Roger won the Ivor Novella Award for for Songwriters of the Year two years in a row. I mean, I look at all this, and it seems like a, a remarkable Pace, can you describe just sort of a a typical day in the life of Roger Cook in that
2: era? It was a bit of a blur, really. I bet. We were so hot, I couldn't believe it. Yeah. I really couldn't. I mean, I remember going to a period of nearly three years where we were never out of the charts. And one Christmas, 1972, we woke up with number one, number three, number four, and number 30-something in the charts. Wow. I mean, it was like, this is the English charts. Yeah. But, yeah, it was all a blur. And I carried on doing what I was doing anyway. I was working with the band Blue Mink, and we were getting stoned and writing songs. and You know, doing what you did back then, you know. And it all kind of passed over the top of my head. Huh. I'll be honest with you. Yeah. I just thought it was going to last forever. And uh, it lasted a long time.
1: Yeah. I guess it's kind of like being in the middle of a hurricane in a way.
2: It's just you're just plowing forward. You know, yeah. your scarf flying behind you. You know, <laughs> just plowing on. Yeah. You know? Right.
1: Right. That's well, really remarkable. One of the most iconic Cook and Greenway songs is "Long Cool Woman in a Black Dress," which you guys wrote with Alan Clark of the Hollies. song topped the charts in the u.s. continues to be a staple on the radio even today um just a a a truly iconic song um tell us how that one actually came together
2: well alan and i were friends and uh we decided to get together one day we made an appointment to write together yeah and what was really foolish of us we decided to have lunch first (laughs) while we both could drink you know right we did a bottle of wine, a couple of brandies, went back to my office, and we were r- rocking. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and that song started off on the piano with me, and I playing this silly riff. Right. You know, which, with my thumb going up and down, because I'm not a real pianist. It's probably an old blues riff, but right. it was something to support the idea of the song. Right. And we decided we were going to write a song about, like, um, Prohibition. Right. In the 30s, you know, in America. Yeah. But the trouble is, uh, we never knew all the images really, in a way, to come up with, and we inserted a lot of English images, like bootlegging, boozer. They don't uh, have boozers in America. We have them in England. They're right, pubs. Right, right. You go down a boozer for a drink. Yeah. So people here must have thought, what the hell is a boozer? <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, and we right. we we went through the song in about two hours flat, wow. and it was written. Yeah, And Alan said, well, you know, it's it's got a good feel to it. He said, yeah. I'll go and try it with the band. And uh, about three weeks later, he said, listen to this. And he played me the thing. And I thought, wow, that's really good. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, um, he went one way with, with all the echo on his voice. He went away. I never even heard him going with it. You know? Yeah. And then it got released. And then the rest is what happened yeah yeah but it went yeah it was a great record it wasn't a big hit in England I don't think he made the top 30 yeah but in America they loved it
1: yeah yeah I mean you still hear it all the time
2: yeah I do and I'm I'll be walking around the um Publix or Kroger's you know and, <laughs> right and it comes on I'm thinking wow I'm buying Cyril and I'm listening to my song <laughs> <laughs> right
1: <laughs> very true now, I've heard you play that song on uh, ukulele, which surprisingly uh, actually works pretty well. You wouldn't think uh, you could play that song on a ukulele, but um, I've actually never seen you play publicly except on a ukulele. And I know you mentioned you wrote that riff on, on piano, but do you typically write with ukulele or do you play guitar? Or?
2: I write mostly ukulele. Really? And about 25% on the piano. Wow. I'm not a pianist, but I can play enough on the piano to write a song. Yeah, yeah. And because I was in doo groups when I was young, I never had to learn to play anything. Yeah, yeah. And I was in a show, uh, in a straight show in uh, 1963, and a guy said to me, do you want to buy a ukulele? I said, well, I I can't play a ukulele. He said, I'll teach you three chords. Yeah. Which he did, and it it cost me six quid, so I bought a ukulele. (laughs) And then I found out... Ukulele's have all the same availability of chords and everything. Yeah. And they're so easy to play. Right, right. That I started writing on ukulele. That's remarkable. Well,
1: I want to talk about the song Doctor's Orders from 1974. It was a, a top ten hit in the U.K. for an artist named Sonny. Then it became a, a top ten hit in the U.S. for Carol Douglas, who recorded it with more of kind of a disco arrangement. And it reappeared in an episode of Sex and the City in, in 2000. way your songs have found life and success in various incarnations kind of it, you see this quite a bit in your career the same song appearing in different places in different times in different ways
2: yeah i have to tell you about that song i didn't that was mainly roger's song yeah he included me on it because we had that deal at the time you know yeah but uh it's mainly roger's song I had no idea it was going to be a hit. I had no idea anybody else was cutting it at the yeah, time. Yeah. I was just pleasantly surprised to have another big hit record. You yeah. Know? Yeah. That's the truth of it.
1: So you and Roger had sort of like a Lennon and McCartney type arrangement. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah.
2: He wrote a bunch of hits. I wrote a bunch of hits and we wrote with various people. We always combined our names because there was a power to the, uh, you know, the ar- arrangement, you know,
3: right. Being a,
1: yeah, a, as a duo. Um, well, in 1975 you hit the top 5 on the R&B chart with 7654321 Blow Your Whistle, which was uh, recorded by the group Gary Tom's Empire. And what's unique about that song is that it's the first time we see a charting single that's credited to just Roger Cook solo without any co-writer. Um, I understand that you you parted ways with Roger Greenaway and, and moved to Nashville around that same time. Uh, what happened that, that sort of brought that successful writing partnership to an end and, and prompted you to move not only to the U.S., but, but specifically to Nashville?
2: Well, it's just, it it just like the end of an era, that's all. Um, it just came to a point where I suddenly woke up one day and I thought, there's something weird about my name going on, all these songs that I didn't write. Hmm. And somebody else's name going on songs that he didn't write. Yeah, and I didn't want our relationship to end, but I wanted my name on songs with him that we wrote together. Yeah, I don't talk about this much, but uh, yeah, and nor does he. But uh, and that's what it was. And uh, I expressed it to him, and he it he, hurt he his feelings, you know. Mm, yeah, he said, "Well, we may as well just split then," you know. Yeah, so we ended up splitting. Hmm. We still remain like brothers. Yeah, we really yeah. do. But uh, it was tough. It was really tough. It was like, um, it was like cutting off my left arm at the time. Sure. Yeah. But I felt it, and then with that, that was like a watershed. I thought, I'm going to get out of England. I'm pigeonholed here. I'm, I'm in the pop factory here. I want to write other things, you know. Yeah. So I decided to come to America. Right. I spent about. Four months in New York, six weeks six weeks in L.A., and I came up to Nashville for a week just for to see what it was all about. And i yeah. stayed 42 years. Yeah, <laughs> well, I fell in love with Nashville.
1: In many ways, your your career can be divided between you know the English years and then the shift to country songwriting success in Nashville, and that really kicked into high gear in 1978 when Crystal Gale hit number one with "Talking in Your Sleep." That's a song that you wrote with Bobby Wood that was nominated for CMA Song of the Year. It, it won the BMI Country Song of the Year Award.
3: You've been talking in
1: your sleep Sleeper On your mind. Even though that song was a smash, there was kind of a gap of about three years between your pop success and your, your Nashville success kicking in. And I'm curious, was there, was there an adjustment period for you in terms of kind of getting into the flow of the Nashville songwriting world as opposed to what you'd known?
2: Yeah, there was a big adjustment. Hmm. I thought you could write a really good song and make it sound like country with instruments and it would be a country record. No. Huh. I was wrong. You had to learn the country lingo and pay attention to what they put in their songs and talking in your sleep was really a pop song. Yeah. But I left out all the English bits. <laughs> right. I left out my little pop bits and made it a straightforward song. Yeah. If you listen to it, and listen to the chord sequence is nothing like country really. Yeah.
3: Yeah. But
2: she was she just come up a huge hit with Don't Make My Brown Eyes Blue. Right. So we got a big number 1 with it. Yeah. And at that point I became part of Nashville. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I just joined the club here in Nashville. Sure. It's wonderful.
1: Yeah was there before that time in that two or three years between moving here and having that big success, did you have a, a, a tough time kind of breaking into the, to the good old boys club here or did people embrace you because of your pop success?
2: I met a bunch of people here, including Cowboy Jack Clements, mm-hmm. Alan Reynolds, well, a bunch of Garth, Garth um, Fundus. Sure. And wonderful musicians like Bobby Wood, yeah, Reggie Young, all these people. I got to know a crowd of people here very quickly. Yeah, and became good friends.
1: And Cowboy Jack Clement is one of those guys that if there's something that's kind of different that comes to town, he he seems like he was able to spot
2: it. Yeah, he welcomed me into his household. I beca- we became really good friends straight away. Yeah, and it was wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. What a person to lean on. And I sat down with him for years and sat down and just picked away on my ukulele while he played all these other people's songs on some of his own. Yeah, And I really got to feel the heartbeat of country right there hmm. working with Jack.
1: Yeah, like going to school.
2: It was. I went to the college of Jack Clement. <laughs> yeah. I certainly did.
1: Yeah, yeah. Crystal Gale recorded several of your songs, including uh, Living in These Troubled Times, which was a top ten hit in 1982. But there's another country artist who found significant success with quite a few of your songs, and that's the great Don Williams. Uh, In 1980, he took I Believe in You to number one, which earned you a Grammy nomination for Best Country Song, a CMA, and ACM nomination for Song of the Year. And being first is always best, but I believe
2: I believe in babies, I believe in mom and dad, and I believe in you.
1: I'm a big Don Williams fan personally, and, and this song is in particular is just, it's killer. I mean, I, I love this song. Um, I'd love just to hear a little bit about writing it and, and how Don ended up cutting it.
2: Well... He'd, he'd already cut a couple of songs of mine, but they weren't released as singles. But I was so proud to get... I can't tell you what Don Williams meant to me, coming yeah. from England, because he'd had a big hit in England, and I thought he had the best voice in country at the time. Yeah. So when I came here in 75, I thought, if I could ever get a Don Williams record, just a cut with him. Yeah. Anyway, I sat down... I wrote that song. I sat down and wrote it all by myself. And... Again, the lyrics were kind of full of, I don't know, full of weirdness (laughs) here and there, you know, oil fields and things. It was just kind of weird. Right. And one night I sat down with a friend of mine called Sammy Hogan. I said, I've got this song. I said, but the lyric doesn't, it doesn't kind of hang in there properly. Not for country. Yeah. So we sat down and we smoked a doobie and we sat up till about one in the morning and straightened that lyric out, Sammy Hogan and I. Yeah. And we eventually had had what uh, we took into the studio and demoed. And I remember um, Garth Fundis coming in. He was looking for Don. Yeah. He came into my office. We played him that song. And it was about halfway through. And he said, look at this. And the hairs were standing up on his arm. He said, that'd be a huge hit for Don. Yeah. I said, really? I said, oh, good. <laughs> good. Yeah and he went away and cut it and that was that
3: yeah yeah wow
1: amazing classic song Um, well Don Williams scored another top five hit in 1981 with Miracles which you wrote solo and then he followed it up soon after with the number one hit Love is on a Roll which you wrote with John Prine
2: Love is on a
3: Love is on a roll, love is on a good roll. How did
1: you and, and John meet and start writing songs together?
2: Well, a mutual friend of ours, it became his wife, actually, eventually. Rachel Peer introduced John and I in 79. And I didn't know a lot about John. Right. I knew he'd had success as a songwriter, singer, you know. Yeah. But I didn't know a lot. And um, we met at a bar Brown's Diner one day. Oh, Yeah he said hi roger i said hi john and i don't know why you know why you hit it off with some people yeah but we had so many things that we liked both of us he taught me to fish and i taught him to play snooker i'll <laughs> have to say anyway um we started writing songs yeah and we would sit up pretty late at night yeah 2 or 3 in the morning writing songs having a drink yeah and playing dominoes yeah and that song that was one song that came out of it hmm. and funny i'll tell you the story about that song is um i got with um gar funders calls me one day and i was at my office he said have you got anything for dom we're in the studio and he said uh we really need an extra song yeah i said i've got a song i think you might like i said but we haven't demoed it yet yeah he said well can you play it on your ukulele i said yeah yeah i'll come over and play it so I went over and sat down with Don and Garth, and I played "Lovers on a Roll, on a maluke, and Don said, I like that. We'll cut that this afternoon. Well, wow. They cut it that afternoon. Three weeks later, three weeks later, the record came out. Within a couple of weeks, it went to number one. Wow. he was big. Yeah. Now, that doesn't happen anymore. No. <laughs> that's the old days. Yeah, you know? that's the fast track. It was awesome.
1: <laughs> wow, that's amazing. Probably not a lot of songs in Nashville that have been pitched in person via ukulele. <laughs> yeah, not a whole bunch, I bet. One right. well, other song that you and, and John Prine wrote together is I Just Want to Dance With You, which John did cut that one in the, in the mid-'80s, and then George Strait revived it as a number-one hit and, and CMA Song of the Year nominee in, in 1998.
2: I got a feeling that you have a heart like mine So let it show, let it shine If we have a chance to make one heart of two I just want to dance with you, I want to dance with you, twirl you all around the floor, that's what they intended dancing for, I just want to dance with you.
1: What can you tell us about that
2: one? John and I wrote it, we wrote it at my house one day, and at the time I thought it was a really good song, I thought, boy, that's just catchy as hell, you know? So uh we went in the studio and did a demo of it. And John did his version and I did a demo. All right. And we waited fourteen years to get a cut on it. And uh eventually John's manager played it to um George Strait's manager, yeah. Who played it to George. And George went, Oh yeah, yeah, I like that. Mm. And we waited 14 years to get that cut. And then it goes to number one for three weeks. Right, right. I mean, so who knows? You never know where
1: they're going to come from. No. (laughs) Well, whether it be Crystal Gale or, or Don Williams or George Strait, it seems that there have been a handful of artists who... I've returned to the Roger Cook songbook repeatedly, and you know before George had his big hit with "I Just Want to Dance with You," he hit number one with "One Night at a Time" in, in 1997, um, and that was named ASCAP's Country Song of the Year. Um, so obviously, you you struck gold a, a couple times with George, just like you had with Don and, and Crystal before that. Um, when you are writing songs, obviously. We know the story on a couple of those Don Williams tunes, but in general, when you are sitting down to write a song, do you think of a specific artist or have a specific thing in mind, or do you just kind of do what you do and then figure it out?
2: I just write whatever I want to write. Yeah. And uh, sometimes you're halfway through the song, you say, you know what, this sounds a lot like Don Williams or George Strait or whoever. Yeah, you know, and then you start to bend the song a little bit that way. Yeah, but you don't sort of start off that way. Yeah, otherwise you wouldn't you wouldn't have the freedom you have as a songwriter. You know. Yeah, yeah. See, you you basically I I anyway I write whatever comes into mind. You know. Yeah. Luckily for me, it's usually sounded like someone. You know.
1: Yeah. Well, you said earlier that you write every day
2: and just about every day
1: do you do that in a in a disciplined i'm right from this hour to this hour type of thing or you get or you tend to get ideas each day and you just kind of take time when you get them and and go mess around with something
2: i set a time for writing always i like to start at 10 in the morning okay and most people who join me on that some people say well that's a bit bloody early you know <laughs> I say, Well come on man, you know. <laughs> I'm bright. For the first three hours of the day, I'm really bright. Yeah. After that I start to vegetate. Yeah, yeah. Cause I'm getting <laughs> up there in years, though. So. I like to keep my muscles taut, you know, in the songwriting sense. Yeah, yeah. I find if you go a few weeks without writing it gets a bit flabby. Huh, yeah, yeah. So it's best to stay on top of it. And it's the only thing I do, you know, yeah. work wise. Yeah. Yeah. I don't do any labor of any kind. Right, right. Although, if you saw me play golf, you would think I labored a little.
1: <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Well, we sure are glad that you've been uh, crafting those songs and, and leaving some amazing uh, work in your wake. I mean, some of these songs are just so iconic. And it's very you, cool to, uh, to have you here and to, to be able to come over to your home and, and hear some of these stories and hear about your career. It's just really cool. Thank you, Scott. It's been cool having you here, man. Thanks for listening. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. You can find us by searching for Songcraft
0: Show. And we look forward to getting together again with you next time for Songcraft, Conversations with Great Songwriters. (laughs)